Hello, welcome to our third episode of Spurbs Herbs, our second of our singles series. Today we are going to be talking about Sharon Amomi Fructus, and it is presented by me, as always, Dr. Greg Sperber. And so let's get into it. Today's podcast, if you would like to support us, please go to our webpage at www.spurbsherbs.com. That's S-P-E-R-B-S-H-E-R-B-S.com. Click on the Amazon banner when you want to purchase something from Amazon, and we will get a small portion of that, and that will help support us continuing this podcast. We would really appreciate it. Thank you. If you are an acupuncturist, this podcast, as well as others, are approved for CAB CEUs and NCCOM PDAs at a reasonable cost, available at our CEU website, www.integrativemedicinecouncil.org. That's .org. But if you slip up and put .com, it'll still send you to the right place. Again, that's www.integrativemedicinecouncil.org. We are looking for sponsors for our podcasts. If you're looking for effective, super targeted, personalized advertising with an excellent return on investment, check out the advertising section of spurbsherbs.com. Let's get into it. So Sharen, I, I want to I tell you a little bit about Sharen before we get into it. Sharen is probably my favorite herb for a lot of reasons. First of all, Sharen, its functions are for me. They're built for me. It's it's uh, it, it's probably a little warming for me, but other than that, it dries dampness. It moves chi. It is a fantastic herb for that. We're going to get into all that in just a little bit. But it's also one of the few really, really tasty herbs. I mean, it is just delicious, um, and we're going to get into that in just in just a minute, and we're we'll talk about its uses and that function. But so it's. Not one of those herbs. So when when we were when I was going through school, there was a, a buddy of mine, a classmate of mine, uh, Andy. Andy uh, Rosenfarb is out there. He he practices in New Jersey. Andy and I we, we had samples of all the herbs, and Andy and I would look at each other and we'd pop each herb into our mouths just as we looked at each other. Most of them tasted horrible. Sharen cardamom was well. We're gonna get into whether it's cardamom, but it was delicious loved it it was fantastic by the way we did stop that tradition when we had super concentrated aloe vera it was a, it was a resin and we put that on our tongue and we were both disgusted by it and that was probably not a bad thing because right after that was when we started getting into some of the excrements so it was probably a good place for us to stop uh tasting all the herbs but Sharen, it just from the very beginning, I just clicked with, I think it's an amazing herb. And uh, part of the reason why it's the second single herb that we're discussing on, on Spurbs Herbs. So when I was going through my master's program, I learned that it was cardamom, that this was cardamom. Amomi fructus was, was cardamom. And I always thought that. I taught that for decades, not years, decades, I taught this herb as cardamom. I just checked my old textbook. Sure enough, it says it is grains of paradise fruit, comma, cardamom. So this is definitely, according to my old textbook, cardamom. And this is why I love what I do here on Spurbs Herbs. 
it isn't cardamom. It isn't cardamom at all. It tastes similar, but it is not cardamom. Let's get into that a little bit. Of course, just knowing that our herb for today, Shaoren, is not cardamom won't stop me from talking about cardamom. Not only is Shaoren one of my all-time favorite herbs, cardamom is one of my all-time favorite spices. It has a flavor profile that is unlike any other spice. And those of you who have tasted it, most of you have hopefully at this point, if in nothing else in chai tea, it is just an amazing, fragrant, tasty spice. So even though Shaoren, our, our herb for the day, is not cardamom, it is cardamom adjacent. And so we're going to talk about how this fits into the cardamom families and where we're looking why it's important and why it's not totally wrong to talk about cardamom in the context of Shaoren. So uh, they are related and we're going to talk about the relationship uh, right now. Let's talk about cardamom. There are three types of cardamom uh, generally considered. There is green, there is black, and there is white cardamom. Green cardamom is considered the true cardamom. The most common Latin name for this spice is Elitaria cardamomum. Again, when it gets into Latin pronunciations, it is my Latin pronunciation is probably worse than my Chinese pronunciation, which gives you an, an idea of how bad both are. So the Latin name for, for true cardamom, the green cardamom, is Elitaria cardamomum. So it has that cardamom in Latinate in there. Our herb for this week is not even Elitaria. That's the genus. It's a totally different genus. It's a momum. It's, it's a momum fructus or a momi fructus. Um, the difference between a momum and a momi is a momi is plural, a momum is singular in, in the Latin, as far as I know. Those of you who have a Latin background can certainly correct me. So our herb, Shaoren, is actually a momum velosum. It is a completely different genus. If you haven't heard this term or you haven't heard this term genus since you were in high school, we're going to get into it. We're going to explain what all that means right now. Because right now we look at Elitaria cardamomum versus Amomum villosum. And guess what? They don't sound similar at all. But they are. So let's talk about that. And to do that, we need to get into biological taxonomy. So we need to talk a little bit about how Biological organisms are organized, and taxonomy is basically a way of, of labeling things. So we're going to stroll a little bit into biology for a moment to discuss the differences in genera. So I said they had different genus. Uh, they had the Elitaria and the Amomum. The singular, that's a genus, and plural is genera. So when, uh, when we're talking about both of them, it's genera. So getting into biological taxonomy, you guys remember might remember this from a uh, from from high school. Uh, those of you who took biology in, in college may have touched on it. It's you know it's fairly basic biology, and we're talking about the hierarchical taxonomy of organisms. And this was developed in the 18th century by a Swedish national a Swedish naturalist named Carl Linnaeus, and he developed what he called the Systema Naturae. Again, some more Latin. There's a lot of Latin in today's uh, superbs herbs. And what the Systema Naturae did was classify organisms and even minerals, though we don't use that so much anymore, uh, into a hierarchical taxonomy. So if you remember, there was a, a reverse pyramid 
with kingdoms, uh, or now we use domains at the top, and they go all the way down to species at the bottom. So when we're talking about Eleutheria cardamomum, and we're talking about momum villosum, we're talking about species. It actually is the genus and the species. So this Systema naturae has changed quite a bit throughout the, the centuries. It was, uh, you know, uh, in the 1700s, so it's, it's over 300 years old. And is now used to describe how organisms are related or not related to each other. And I gotta say, the especially as we get into some of the the lower, not the the broad domains and kingdoms, but as we get into the lower areas of the hierarchical taxonomy, genetics and the ability to actually do genetic classification of organisms helped a lot and moved a lot of animals and organisms into different species, genera families, those sort of things. So uh, that has been a, a real awakening of our biology in the last 50, 60 years. The biological taxonomy starts to classify organisms in their broadest sense into domains. And there are really three major domains. Not included in this is viruses, because viruses are still some controversy about whether or not viruses are alive or they just hijack things, but they have their own sort of, they follow a similar schema, but they mean different things than what we're gonna be talking about. So that's a separate thing. But right now, the the three major domains are archaea, archaea, we'll get to that in just a second, bacteria, so you're familiar with bacteria, and eukarya. Eukarya translates as true cells. So eukarya means true cells. And so those are everything other than bacteria and archaea, archaea. If you haven't heard this term archaea, that's because it's relatively recent in the last couple decades. And it's this whole new form of life. It's older, we think, than bacteria and anything else. And you will have, if, if you've heard about them, it's, we've been finding them in extreme, they're called extremophiles, extreme places on earth so they will be at the uh, vents from lava vents at the bottom of the ocean or even uh, closer they've found them in some of the hot springs where it's too hot for anything else and not only just too hot but just the chemical makeup is just too extreme for anything to exist there that we know of before and we've cultured those and we found these archaea there they're kind of like proto bacteria they have you know, if you look at bacteria, there's similarities between them and eukarya, and there are similarities between archaea and the, and the bacteria as well. So I, it's just a fascinating domain. Uh, we're not going to get into it here, but it is definitely something uh, if you're interested to, to research. And again, they've only discovered in the last, you know, 20 years or so. It's, it's relatively recent. So then after domains, we have our kingdoms. Uh, so when I was in high school, there were no domains. I think we started with kingdoms. And now we have domains as the highest level of the, the hierarchy. And next up is kingdoms. So for example, in eukarya domain, there are plants, animals, proteists, and fungi. Those would be the four, four kingdoms under the eukarya domain. So obviously, uh, we're going to be talking about plants uh, as, as we get into these into what we're talking about today. I might use a few examples of the animals, but uh, plants are going to be where we're at. So let's continue our discussion of biological taxonomy. So as we get more specific, we move through phylum. The plural for phylum is phyla, 
We have class, classes, orders, and most specifically, we land on family, genus, or genera for the for the uh, for the plural, and species. And species is both plural and singular. So, so those are the different levels. We have domain, kingdom, phyla, classes, orders, families, genera, and species. Now, family is important to our discussion, and we'll get back to that in just a minute. So, so far we've talked about uh, genera and genus and species, uh, even if we haven't quite labeled them as such. We've talked about genus for sure, uh, but we, we're getting into species now. So when you see a Latin name of an organism, in our case a plant, it is described, it is described by what is known as binomial nomenclature. So binomial means two, and nomenclature means names, so two names. The nomenclature is capitalized is a capitalized genus followed by the lowercase species name. So that's how that's the binomial. So the first of the two names is the genus and it is capitalized. And then the second is lowercase and species. And they're often uh, they, they, they're uh, either italicized or sometimes they're uh, they're underlined, but they, they should be separated in that context with with uh, either italics or underlining. And so what we were talking about is Eleteria cardamomum. So Eleteria would be the genus, and cardamomum would be the species under that genus. Or we were talking about Amomum velosum. So Amomum would be the genus, and velosum would be the species. So that's the binomial nomenclature that is common throughout all of the, the biological taxonomy. But you can, after those that binomial, the two names, it can be followed by more specific names about the part of the plant. So, for example, in herbology, it, we'll, we'll talk about that part of the plant. So we'll say fructus or semen. Fructus meaning the fruit of the plant or semen meaning the seed of the plant. Or all number, radix for root. There's a whole bunch. There, there will be. We will discuss all the different parts of a plant at some point on one of these, these uh, spurbs herbs. You can also, if uh, you're not specific, like in herbology, we'll use that, but uh, the different parts aren't necessarily uh, as useful to, to, for the nomenclature in other contexts. So you might have a specific subspecies or a cultivar. A cultivar is, is basically a subspecies that was cultivated and, and uh, used for whatever thing. So, for example, we would have, you know, in the, in the case of a peach, there's lots of different kinds of peaches. So you would have the species would be the normal genus and and species but then after that it might be all the different varieties a name for whichever variety there is and uh, i don't even know what kind of varieties there's tons of them that would be how you would separate they'd all be of the species and then you would separate that out so one of the examples of this would be for our herb today i said it's a momum velosum but the latin name is actually a momum velosum fructus because we are actually the herb is the fruit of the momum velosum plant it's not the 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 uh, the roots or the the rhizomes the uh, the uh, branches no, no, nothing like that we've been talking around these different levels of species genus and family but let's get into what is the definition of of each of these so the definitions of family and genus are a little vague a family is more specific than an order and a genus is more specific than a family uh, that's about it. Other than that, they get debated by specialists in this in this context. They are, you know, there's there 
things can move. They can, you know, something can start as one and move to another as, as more information is, is uh, discovered. So it's a little vague as to what specifically is a genus and what specifically is a family. What we can say is a family is more specific than an order and a genus is more specific than a family. And we could also say that things that are in a family have more in common than things that are in an order. And the same token, things that are in a genus are more uh, similar than things that are in a family. Generally, though, overall, families are more stable than genera. You know, species in genera, they will change. They will mutate. They will um, change with, uh, with environmental pressures and things like that. Gene genera and, and species are a little bit more fluid and flexible than families. Families tend to be a little bit more stable than actual genera are. Now, here's where it gets a little interesting. Species, so again, there can be different definitions of this, but one of the classic definitions, and still used to a large extent, is it is the largest group of individuals that can mate and produce fertile offspring. Now, that's important, fertile. There's, within a genus, you might be able to reproduce, but the offspring will not be fertile. So. That is a, is a common thing. And the species, as we know, is technically is the lowest level of the hierarchy, though there are, like we said, there are variants within the species. So uh, you can get more, more specific than a species, but not within a, a biological taxonomy sort of thing. They, so generally we look at what if individuals can actually reproduce and have fertile offspring, and then but you, we can use other things other than the, that criteria. They can also be determined uh, by such things as DNA, morphology. Morphology means the the shape and how you know what it looks like, and or behavior even. So uh, you can have a species because they're similar in behavior. So those are different other criteria. But I always learned the definition is that uh, they can mate and produce fertile offspring within within themselves. So why did we go off on that tangent and talk about species, genera, and families? And the reason why is we talked about that our herb is a different species than cardamom, and it's also a different genus. So, you know, a couple stages away from it. However, they do share the same family. So if we didn't understand the context of family, genera, and species, uh, we couldn't have this discussion. So they do have the same family, and that family is an interesting family. It's Zingiberaceae, is what it is. That's my best attempt at pronunciation. Zingiberaceae, and this is the same family as ginger, galangal. If uh, you're not familiar with that, that's used a lot in Thai cooking. I love it, and turmeric. So very similar to those. The same family as all of those, and all of those have a lot of antioxidant. And, and other really, you know, all of those that I just said, with the possible exception of galangal, have strong uh, medical uh, aspects to it. And, I, and, I, and galangal does as well. It's just not as, as used as some of the others. So, and these are all the same family. So cardamom is in that family. Our herb, shawren, is in that family as well. So they're all very similar in that context. And you can also see that uh, with those, turmeric doesn't have huge taste but it definitely has some taste but the others are very strong flavored uh plants and so at least the parts that we we, we use so that is the family zingiberaceae 
So we're getting back, well, we, we haven't gotten into it. We're gonna talk about the three kinds of cardamom. So the most common and commonly used type is green or true cardamom. And we've been talking about that. That is Eleteria cardamomum. Uh, that is when you, when you say cardamom, uh, that is generally what you're referring to is the green cardamom. And it does look green. You know, you buy it and it's dried, it's green. The other type is black cardamom. When you, when you see that in its shell, the seeds are definitely black, but when you see it in its shell, it's, uh, it's, it's more brown than black, but the, the seeds are very black. And that is Amomum sub, uh, subulatum, subulatum, Amomum subulatum. So that is black cardamom. So now you can see that Amomum is now getting into that realm of cardamom, but it's a different species than the species of our herb. In fact, is actually listed as an adulterant of our herb. Some people will try and pass a momum sub, sub, subulatum off as a momum velosum, which is just not correct. And it, and the reason why they will do that and the reason why we call it an adulterant is because I'm assuming it's a cheaper uh, way to do that. So some unscrupulous people will, will substitute the momum subulatum instead of the momum velosum. Uh, the black cardamom, the momum subulatum, has a smoky flavor and is used in more savory dishes. The the Eleteria cardamomum, the green cardamom, is uh, doesn't have that smoking. It's used in a lot of different dishes and, and can be used in savory dishes, but it's also used a lot in in um, in uh, desserts and things along those lines. One of my favorite uh, Indian food, of course, desserts is uh, the rice pudding uh, that they have in the. Uh, I, I love it with that cardamom in there. It just makes it mm. So that is green cardamom and black cardamom. So those are two of the three types of cardamom. The third type of cardamom is white cardamom. So this is an interesting one because many sources, when I, when I investigate cardamom, say that white cardamom is actually a bleached version of the green cardamom with a milder, milder flavor and so that's that's it's the same thing as the true cardamom it's that eleteria cardamomum but it's been bleached and because of that bleaching it has a milder flavor and the other reason why they do that is because it can then be used in baked goods so you don't get little flakes of black or green in the baked goods this is white and so it, it blends right into baked goods and so it makes the the food more appealing uh, at a visual level so that's that's one uh, definition of white cardamom. However, other sources indicate there's another species of amomum entirely, and that's amomum curvren. Oh man, this is a hard one. It's K R E R V A N H, curvan. That clearly is is not a Latin uh, word, at least not that I've ever seen. So I'm sure it comes from a name of some other. Uh, sometimes there will be people's names or names of something else. So several sources say that white cardamom is actually a momum cravan. So that means that of the three cardamoms, quote unquote cardamoms, one is true, which is Eleteria cardamom, and the other two are of the amomum variety. So amomum is right in there. And our herb, Shaoren, I swear, tastes a lot like cardamom. So maybe not all the complexity, but it's it's pretty close. And so amomum's right there, even though it's a different genus and a different species. But back to the Amomum Cravan, which is the white cardamom. Uh, it is also a Chinese herb. Uh, that Chinese herb is called Baidoko, 
which uh, I didn't get the translations, but by means white, so it makes sense here. And it's very similar to and often used with our herb Shawren. So they are actually used together on occasion. It is a combination we're going to talk about in just a few. It is considered less drying, cooler, and works on the lungs and less on the spleen and stomach than our herb Shawren. It does not calm the fetus, which we will find out Shawren does. So we're going to get into that as well. So it's it's a little bit milder and it goes more to the lungs. So if you have phlegm in the lungs, the Bidoco is a better choice than our herb today, Shawren. So those are the three different cardamoms that you can actually buy. These are all on, uh, you know, purchasable. So cardamom is used in a lot of things and used extensively in Indian food. As we're going to find out, that's where it was first discovered and first cultivated. It was in India. So uh, definitely used extensively in Indian food. I, I would say most people have tasted cardamom in chai tea. Uh, if you've ever had chai tea, uh, it, it has very distinct, powerful flavors. And one of those is going to be the cardamom. Uh, I love chai tea. Um, I don't drink it that often, and, and I'll explain why in just a second. But chai tea is almost a master class in herbology. Often including, and again, there's lots of different recipes, so this changes, but it includes ginger, cloves, nutmeg, cinnamon, star anise, fennel, and black pepper. All of those are herbs that are used both in Chinese herbology and also a lot in Ayurvedic herbology. So uh, you you understand a lot of that. It's it it it's just an amazing sort of thing in herbology. Now, I said I don't use it very often. I don't drink chai tea very often. And the reason why is if you look at every last one of those herbs I just mentioned, ginger, cloves, nutmeg, cinnamon, star anise, fennel, and black pepper, they're all very warming or hot in nature. So uh, now with traditional chai tea, I believe you're supposed to have a milk product with it, which would add some cooling aspects to it. So it's a little bit balanced. But that's pretty extreme on the heat. So if I were to have chai tea, and I'm already tend to run a little bit on the warm side, that would just not be good for my health. So that's why I don't I don't have chai tea very often. But it is delicious. And if you look at a lot of these things from a Western point of view, a lot of them have anti-inflammatory functions. So if you have an inflammatory or an autoimmune condition, a lot of this could be very helpful as long as you're not hot. Cardamom is often included in a marsala daba. If you're not familiar with a marsala daba, it's an Indian spice box. Uh, you've probably seen them. It's a, it's usually a circular uh, metal container with small metal containers inside that that uh, have spices, and it makes it easy because the the individual containers inside don't have any lids. So you open up the spice box and you can scoop out very quickly all the spices you want. And often. Families will have multiple spice boxes uh, for different purposes. I've been told it's a traditional gift for uh, a woman who gets married is that uh, I believe it's her family will, will give her a spice box for her family. Uh, so it's, a, it's a, quite a tradition uh, and cardamom is part of that. In general, cardamom is a spice that should be stored whole and ground just before being used. You should not buy pre-ground cardamom. It is available. Uh, I was looking at uh, different cardamoms on, online. Uh, all these are available online. Uh, the white cardamom was a little bit harder to find than the black and the green cardamom, 
but a lot of it was ground, a lot of it was seeds, and a lot of it was whole pods. And so uh, generally, if it were me, what I usually do, I, I just purchase some for a recipe we're gonna talk about in just a second, and it is in seeds. So I would actually ground those, grind those up. I use a coffee grinder to grind those up, or you can use a mortar and pestle. Actually, I gotta say, I, I have a coffee grinder for this purpose, but I can never find it. So more often than not, I use a mortar and pestle. Uh, to, to crush them, ground them up. But that is, you should do that just before using. And we're going to find out the reason why is because there's a lot of aromatic oils in the seeds. And so if you do it, uh, if you just have ground cardamom, then those aromatic oils over time are going to dissipate and you're going to have a much less flavorful smell, um, arom aromatic, oh God, the aroma is amazing, uh, much less potent cardamom if you store it uh, for long periods of time as a, as a powder. So it should be stored as either in the pods uh, or in this, as seeds. And then ground just before using. Uh, I have used it, I, I, like I said, I've loved, I love caramel. I've used it in chili as a little surprise spice. Uh, throws in a little something, something to it. Uh, I have been, uh, currently I've been preparing for an acupuncture happy hour and wanted to include some mocktails with the acupuncture happy hour. If you're an acupuncturist, and you should probably know what an acupuncture happy hour. If you're not, it's just a a, a nice little gathering where uh, what I have is menus that are available, and and they can choose. And when, all I do is ear acupuncture and and keep them in for a while while they sit and chat and and have mocktails, uh, all that sort of stuff. So, and I have a, a little menu that they can choose whether they want. They can say like stop smoking in the right ear and improve memory on the left ear or or what have you. So uh, I find most of my patients actually like the pain um, sort of aspect. So they'll say I have low back pain, so I'll put in uh, pain points in the ear that will help the low back. So uh, it's it's really kind of cool and fun and do it every once in a while as a, as a fun thing. So I wanted to include some mocktails when I did one. And so, but I wanted to also kind of introduce some herbs and um, health items when I did that. So I actually, after a lot of research, I kind of settled on a very interesting sort of mocktail. And I'm going to have the recipe on this on, on the website in Spurbs Herbs. So, uh, spurbsherbs.com. So if you want to see this recipe, you can just go there and pick it up and, you know, click on the, on this podcast and it will be there. It's the supplemental materials. So what I, what I actually settled on was a homemade ginger beer, which sounds complicated, but it's actually really simple to make your own ginger beer, and it's supposed to be amazing. I haven't quite gotten around to making it yet, so I can't swear by all this, but I'm excited to try it. So homemade ginger beer, and then I paired that with a shrub. If you're not familiar with a shrub, shrub is kind of an old term, and it's usually... Uh, sugar and uh, um, usually some sort of fruit and then mixed with vinegar. So what, what you would do is you macerate a, a fruit, you mix it in with sugar, let it sit for a day or two, and you pour in some uh, vinegar and you mix that, uh, you let that sit for a day or two, and then you take a small portion of that out and add it to water or uh, carbonated water, or in this case, ginger beer, and you have a very nice... Uh, cocktail or and and some people will put uh, alcohol with the shrubs it's it shrubs are kind of interesting they're it, it, they can be very strong if you don't dilute it enough 
but if you dilute it, it's a very interesting flavor with, with everything going on. So I was going to combine the ginger beer with a pear shrub with vanilla and cardamom. So ginger is an herb in Chinese medicine, so uh, Xinjiang. So that is a, uh, that introduces the, the idea of herbs. Pears are very good for uh, fluids, for the lungs. So that, again, is, is sort of a, a Chinese uh, dietary concept. Uh, the the vinegar I was going to do was in this was an apple cider vinegar, which is said to have a lot of health benefits. And then the cardamom, because I love cardamom, I wanted to do that in this shrub. So that's what I was going to prepare uh, and, and will prepare at, at some point when I do this. Uh, and so uh, that recipe is on the website. All right, let's get into our actual herb for today. And we're talking about Sha-Ren. So that's first tone, second tone. First tone and second tone, Sha-Ren. So that is our herb for the day. Its English translation of Sha-Ren is sand seeds. So Ren means seeds and Sha means sand, so sand seeds. Uh, it's often, it's Amomi fructus is how it is in our textbooks. But as we've been talking about, the standard species is Amomi velosum. Um, with this, but there are other species that fall under this this rubric of Sha-Ren, including Amomum langili, I can't even pronounce it, langili jilari. Uh, that's a weird one, and Amomum xanthodes. Uh, in fact, I've I, a lot of the research that I came across was more, a lot of it was on Amomum velosum, but a lot of it was also on Amomum xanthoides. So these are all considered, they're very similar. Obviously, they're all the same genus, and they're actually very similar as species. So other names for this is Amomum fruit, Villus Amomum fruit, Grames of Paradise fruit, and as I said, cardamom, but mistakenly, uh, they will call it cardamom. The normal dosage of this is three to six grams. So it's a lighter dosage than most herbs. Most of our herbs are in the six to nine gram category. This is three to six grams. So it's a strong herb. Uh, so you should use a little bit less than, than the normal dosage on this. It should be added at the end of a decoction or end of a preparation because of those volatile oils. If you cook it for too long, all those volatile oils, volatile oils which are very beneficial, will go up in the air in the steam so you do want to add it to the end of a decoction in fact usually you stop the decoction and add this in and just let it infuse with the warm water and as we mentioned earlier it should be crushed um, in this case when we use it as an herb it should be lightly crushed just open them up you don't need to to make them into a powder like you might if you were cooking with it There are some differences among sources as to what the original uh, source for this herb, in other words, where was this first written about? In Chinese medicine, the most likely candidate is the Yaoxing Ben Sao or the Materia Medica of Medicinal Properties. That was written by Shen Chuan in 600 CE. Uh, that's the Chinese portion of that. And then, but in India, there are some written references to cardamom, which again, you know, is not exactly the same thing, but close, as early as 1400 to 1600 BCE. So that's a long time ago. Those of you, I, I'm using CE and BCE. Those of you who haven't been in school for a long time, um, that stands for Common Era and Before the Common Era. Um, it You were not supposed to be using uh, Before Christ and After Death, BC and AD anymore, because that's very Christian-centric. So we use uh, Common Era and Before the Common Era, 
but we still use the same reference point, which is uh, the birth of, or the death, I'm not even sure which one, of Christ. So it's still kind of Christian-oriented, it's just a different term that isn't as clearly Christian-oriented. So CE and BCE. Its category is aromatic herbs that transform dampness. Some one one textbook translates that as, as transform dampness. Another one says drain dampness. Uh, I was always kind of taught that aromatic herbs are more transformative than draining, and there are other herbs that are more draining. Um, draining meaning it promotes urination, so you you get rid of dampness that way. Transforming means you kind of warmly transform it into something else uh, rather than dampness. So I think probably the better translation here is aromatic herbs that transform dampness. It is spicy or acrid. Uh, those in, in Chinese medicine are synonyms. So spicy, acrid, uh, uh, acrid is the other way to pronounce that. Probably the better way to pronounce it, spicy and acrid. It's warm and that does play a role. So it is, it is quite a warming herb. And it's aromatic and enters the spleen and stomach. So uh, aromatic is a uh, definitely a, a descriptor of an herb. So spicy, warm, and aromatic is the descriptor of this herb. And then it enters the spleen and stomach, which makes a lot of sense when we look at its functions. It does a lot for digestion. So we're saying it transforms dampness. So let's talk about dampness for a minute here. Uh, because we have to understand this concept of dampness if we're going to understand what this herb does. So dampness is one of the six pathogenic factors in Chinese medicine. Uh, others include uh, cold, heat, uh, wind, those sort of things. So dampness is one of those. From a Chinese perspective, it's caused by pooling of fluids globally or in specific parts of the body. It is sticky, difficult to get rid of, heavy, slows things down, and it sinks. I, you know, the, the way I, I think of dampness often, um, well, let me read some more of this and then, and then, oh, no, actually this is, so the, the way I kind of often describe it to my patients is there's those days or those times when you feel like you're walking through jello, that everything is just really hard to move your body. And it just, it feels like there's resistance to everything you do, not just physically but also mentally and emotionally there's just resistance that's dampness that heaviness so it causes a feeling of heaviness in the body and or head fullness of the chest or epigastrium the, the epigastrium is near the the stomach that's what it means so uh, under you know the lower rib cage a sticky taste urinary difficulty and or vaginal discharge so if you have vaginal discharge we we uh, you know, excessive vaginal discharge, we, we say that's a form of dampness. And then there's subforms, so damp heat, damp cold, things along those lines, phlegm. Um, in addition, depending on where in the body it is manifest, dampness can cause specific signs and symptoms. So if you have it in your lungs, you probably are going to, um, the dampness is going to be a fullness in the lungs. And as you, it, it, dampness can over time transform into phlegm. And so then you start having uh, phlegm coughing up and things along those lines. So those that would be an idea of uh, specific signs and symptoms depending on where the dampness actually enters. So that's a really brief overview of dampness. It, it gets a lot more than that, but at least it gives us an idea of what this herb can, can help treat. So good quality Shaoren should have a strong aroma. The seeds should be oily and with a hard and heavy texture to them. And the fruit should be full consistent and uniform 
and not fragmented. So you don't want broken up. That means too dry, not oily, not, not high quality. So do the Chinese medical actions include promoting the movement of qi? Uh, and that's one, one source text. Uh, another one or two say regulates the qi. Basically, it moves qi. Qi, as I've said uh, in previous Spurbs Herbs episodes, qi is a concept we're going to get into. That's, uh, that's quite a concept in and of itself, but it is uh, important in Chinese medicine. So we'll, we'll talk about qi in a bit. But what the qi is, is what animates us, what, what allows us to be alive. So um, qi is important, and it, when it stagnates, we get symptoms. So this promotes the movement of qi. It transforms or dissolves dampness. Again, different translations, transforms, dissolves dampness. Both those I, I like for this herb. Strengthens the spleen. So the spleen is an interesting, if you're coming from a Western point of view, the spleen is an interesting organ in this context. Because the spleen in a Western sense, the spleen, all it does is it's like basically a big lymph node and it helps with the immune system. That there is similarities with that with spleen functions in Chinese medicine. However, the spleen in Chinese medicine is actually considered the primary digestive organ, even more so than the spleen and small intestine. I mean, the, the stomach and small intestine. And so it, it anything that involves digestion involves the spleen at some level. And, and from a Western point of view, you just have to scratch your head and go, what were the Chinese on when they said that? Let me explain. It's actually really interesting because when you look at some of the anatomy books of, of Chinese medicine uh, from you know, the 1600s or something, they will talk about the spleen having a tail. And if you look at the spleen anatomically, it's like an odd-shaped balloon. There is no tail to the spleen whatsoever. It's all rounded edges. There is no nothing that you can think of that would be a tail uh, involving the spleen. But just below the spleen sits the long triangular pancreas. And so in Chinese medicine, when we say spleen, we're probably talking about a combination of spleen pancreas. If you look at the functions of the spleen in Chinese medicine, it combines those functions quite, quite a lot. And when you look at it, the pancreas's main job is to develop uh, enzymes that help break down our food. It, it has other things too, as, as we know, in, in insulin and, and those sort of things. But, uh, and again, that's all still part of the, to a certain extent, the digestive and storing process of digestion. So, but we can't break down food effectively without the, the, the pancreatic enzymes. And so in that context, uh, if you include the pancreas into the Chinese term spleen, then it makes perfect sense that this, the Chinese spleen would be part of uh, digestive process. So when we say strengthens the spleen, we're saying it strengthens that organ that is uh, primary in digestion. It also warms the middle, stops diarrhea. So warming the middle is, is an important function. Again, that warming function that we were talking about. Stops diarrhea. doesn't stop all diarrhea. It's, it stops specific types of diarrhea, and especially cold or damp uh, diarrhea. And then here's a really interesting one. One one text translated this as calms the fetus. The other one says stabilizes pregnancy. But the, the all the, the texts that I look at agree that it aids vomiting during pregnancy and morning sickness. So that's sort of the 
stabilizing pregnancy side of that. And then it calms a restless or stirring fetus, again, different translations as well. So if you have a, a fetus that's, that's moving around, this can calm the fetus. There are four herbs that calm the fetus, and this is one of them. Uh, and, it, and, and in this case, it's because of, of chi not moving properly. So there's some stagnation and it makes it uncomfortable for the fetus. But a very interesting uh, uh, function for, for, the, for uh, Sha Ren. Sha Ren is strongly aromatic, warming, drying, and comfortably spreading. That is a direct quote from one of the, the textbooks. Comfortably spreading. So it doesn't spread strongly. It's, it's comfortable. Uh, a a uh, source text says it called the transforming the significance of medicinal substances is translated in uh, Bensky et al., uh, which is one of the major textbooks on, on Chinese herbology states its aromatic chi harmonizes the five organs and follows guiding herbs to unblock and mobilize all channels. So it's a really good herb for that movement of chi. And, uh, and, and in this context, in, in this quote, it says it can help the whole body, all the organs, all that. So, and, and by the way, when we say this context, it says the five organs, uh, Chinese doesn't think there's five organs. They, there's five yin organs and then five or six yin organs on, depending on how you parse it and six yang organs. And so, um, that's what it's referring to when it says the five organs. Uh, and then there's what we call the extraordinary organs, which are on top of those. So there's, we, we have a full panoply of organs. Trust me. Another translation in the same textbook uh, from the Grand Materia Medica says it promotes chi movement and stops pain. When fetal chi is injured and disturbed, the pain is unbearable. So again, I, if you're moving chi, we say pain is caused by stagnation of chi and blood and or blood. And so one of the things we always do with pain is we try to move it depending on the source of pain. Um, so the promotion of chi movement should no matter should also help pain stop pain. So that's what this is is uh, referring to. There are a few uh, actually only one major preparation for this, and that is called salt prepared uh, preparation yan sharen, uh, and this is done and it, and it's used by soaking in in uh, salt water and then dry frying it. So it's just a way to prepare the herb, salt prepared. And when you do that, salt is, it soaks up water, as we know. It's so uh, it reduces some of the acrid heat, spicy heat, causing it to be less drying, causing it to direct chi and other herbs downward. It also, in that context, enhances the calm fetus function of the herb. So it basically is less strong on the drying side of things. It does change the the function of the herb a little bit from spreading chi to directing chi and other herbs downward so it, it actually puts a direction on that and then it enhances the confidence function because it isn't as warm it isn't as aggravating it works well with that it can also in this in this preparation can help warm the kidneys and inhibit urination so in in case of of too much urination so that is salt prepared, yan sha ren. Uh, something else involved with this is sha ren ke, uh, 
uh, and this refers to the husk of Shaoren. So uh, we have the fruit of Shaoren has a husk around it and then several seeds in the middle of it. So what we're doing, if you take the seeds out and just keep the husk, that's Shaoren Ke, also known as Shaoren Chao. And it has similar functions, but is less strong and less warming than Shaoren itself. So it can provide a gentler treatment than Shaoren. So sometimes this is used in uh, extreme cases where uh, the uh, spleen is, is very deficient uh, and this would this is a gentler way to approach approach everything. It has a couple combinations that are of importance. One of these is with Magnolia officinalis cortex or HOPO. They both promote the movement of chi. So HOPO is definitely, and it's an aromatic herb as well. So you have two aromatic herbs that are promoting the movement of chi. Hopo directs chi downward while Shaoren unbinds the stomach by drying dampness. So basically, think of Shaoren as kind of unwinding things while Hopo kind of moves chi downwards. Uh, the combination enhances these functions and is used in cases of distension and fullness of the abdomen. So that's a great combination for that. Another combination is with Citri reticulate, reticulate pericarpium. Uh, this is Chen Pi is the Chinese, so very commonly used uh, uh, qi moving herb in Chinese medicine. And it is, I've been told, I don't quote me on this because I haven't done my research yet, but I've been told that's tangerine peel. It may be a specific type of uh, tangerine. Um, so that's Chen Pi. And they're used together to treat a variety of conditions, including damp obstructing the spleen and or stomach disharmony with symptoms of diarrhea, belching, nausea, and vomiting. Together, they eliminate dampness, strongly regulate the chi, and harmonize the middle. Those are both uh, have a lot of functions very similar. One is in the aromatic transform damp category. The, the, that's the Shaoren that we're talking about. The Chen Pi is in the promotion of, of uh, chi, moving chi, regulate the chi category. So, um, But they, there is overlap in their functions. They just do some of those stronger than others. So this herb can be compared with a couple others. One of those we already mentioned, which is Bidoco that we talked about. That is the white uh, cardamom that we discussed earlier. And the as we talked about then, the Bidoco focuses more on the lungs and less so on the spleen and stomach. It is used for phlegm and dampness, obstructing the lungs. It does not calm the fetus. So if you want to calm the fetus, you definitely want to use our herb Shaoren. Another herb, another herb mentioned as a potentially similar herb is psychofructus. That's it's not psycho. I'm not saying psycho. Sao T S A O K O fructus, and the Chinese term for the Chinese uh, name for this is Saoguo, which is also in the same genus. So it is in a momom as well. Shaoren is strongest in promoting the flow of qi, while Saoguo is strongest in warming and drying. So if you want to remote qi more than the warming and drying function, you want to use sha ren. If you want more warming and, and drying and less promotion of, of qi, sai guo is, is uh, the herb to go with. can be used in combination with each other as well, though rarely. So let's talk about the science of, our, of sha ren. This herb appears to be very safe herb. 
There's one Chinese study that gave very large doses to rats for 30 days without any detrimental effects. The only thing to worry about is there have been some allergic reactions to this herb reported, but it's a spice. It's you know relatively safe. Like I said, from a Chinese point of view, I'd be worried about the the warming aspect of it. That we you want to make sure that's balanced out to a certain extent, and that you're not overdoing the warming function of this herb. So not taking too too much unless you need to. So there are many claims made about Shaoren. Many are from animal studies, low level of evidence. Most of these, even the human studies are small. Think of these as more indications of where this, these herbs could be used in terms of Chinese, I mean, in terms of, of Western medicine. Low concentration administration in rats and rabbits stimulated the intestines, so it helped digestion. But high concentrations inhibited the intestines. This might be why we have a smaller dose of this herb than some of our other herbs that we use. There is a mild antiplatelet effect in rabbits. This is important. We're going to talk about that a little bit when we get into drug-herb interactions. A rat study showed increased long bone growth. They were actually, the authors of that study were actually advocating using it in cases of, of retarded growth. Again, rat study not applied to humans. We have a long way to go before that's, that's a viable treatment uh, idea. Uh, it is used to treat nausea in, in humans in a small Chinese study to, to good effect, and that makes perfect sense given its traditional functions. Small human study looked at its use in treating peptic ulcer disease. So this would be stomach ulcers or, or duodenal ulcers and improved symptoms such as epigastric pain, distension, and acid reflux. Again, small study, good indication, doesn't, it goes along with our traditional functions. So that, that makes sense but more science is needed. There have been um, some studies that have shown antibacterial effects that was done in vitro, and I'm always worried about in vitro, when, especially when it comes to antibacterial or next uh, effect that we're gonna talk about. In vitro means not in humans, uh, more in the lab. In, in vitro literally means in glass. Uh, so antibacterials, you put some bacteria together, you put a couple drops of this in, and you see the bacteria die. That doesn't mean that if you take it and as a human, that it's actually going to have antibacterial effects. So I'm, I'm a little skeptical of that one. It does have, in the same context, it has been shown to have some antioxidant effects. Again, not being uh, in human, uh, the study, study not being in human, give, give this study a grain of salt. Uh, this is an interesting one. Mice and rats showed some benefit to diabetes. There was some, some control of glucose in, in uh, so a couple uh, mice and rat studies. So that's an interesting one. Again, mice and rats, not humans. So take it with a grain of salt. However, this one's an interesting one. It's a slightly larger study. I think, I can't remember if this is the 47-person study or the 80-person study, both of which are relatively small, but large enough to have statistics done on them. And in, this, in these human studies, they used it to treat helicobacter, helicobacter pylori infections, which is the infections that cause ulcers. And what they found, it had better results than triple therapy, which is the standard therapy used in H. pylori infections. The standard therapy in H. pylori infections is to use three, uh, two antibiotics and one sort of a, a coating or something to help the antibiotics uh, a little bit in order to treat H. pylori, which is a difficult bacteria to, to get rid of, um, but you need to get rid of it, otherwise you'll have those ulcers. And in this human study, small, it had better results with using an extract from, car from uh, Sharan, not cardamom, Sharan, 
and that was better than the the triple therapy of drugs used uh, as a standard. So that's an interesting study. That was uh, over ten years ago, in two thousand eight. Not a lot else was has been done since then. So I I can't say that's a that's a go, but I can say it's an interesting study. There are many constituents uh, to. Shaoren, uh, our herb, it contains many essential and volatile oils, almost too many to, to actually list, all of which, if you look them up, they all have some functions here, or might have those functions there. It was just, if I were to get into that, we'd be talking about that only in an hour and nothing else, so I didn't want to get into it. But I did want to talk about uh, two, camphor and bornyl acetate. Uh, which are actually in several other herbs that we may use, you know, that we that are in Chinese medicine, and both of them have been shown to have analgesic effects. So analgesic means uh, pain, reducing pain effects. So that's definitely a good good thing in there. It has some saponins, zinc, copper, iron. Uh, everywhere I looked at this, they had totally different lists. Those are broad in general. Nothing super stands out as like, okay, this is the reason why this this herb has a lot of the functions it does. Otherwise, I'd I'd call that out. But a lot of standard stuff that's in, in other uh, herbs and have been shown to have some beneficial effects. There is an issue, a, a concern with drug-herb interactions. There is low-level evidence that shows Shaoren may have antiplatelet action and should be used with caution with anticoagulant drugs such as warfarin, heparin, clopidogrel, or even aspirin. So do you take that into account with patients on, on those types of drugs? There are some concerns, uh, contraindications for using this, this herb. Should not be used in patients who have blood deficiency, blazing fire. Again, it's warming, so you don't want to add that fire. Or yin deficiency heat. So um, yin deficiency heat is can happen in, in anybody, but often is postmenopausal women. That's a lot of, we, in Chinese medicine. We we attribute a lot of the the uh, menopausal symptoms to yin deficiency and the heat that comes from that. So should be cautious. Should not be used in the in patients with any of those conditions. Overconsumption by pregnant women may exhaust the qi and cause a difficult labor. You don't have enough qi to actually um, do a proper labor, so can be a concern there as well. So no overconsumption there. Again, uh, therapeutically, we use three to six grams a day. So that's a relatively low dose of this. And that is everything that you want to know about Sha Ren. Uh, Amomum fructus or Amomi fructus. So uh, another exciting episode of Spurbs Herbs, almost done. We are going to have another episode next Saturday, next week. And we're going to do our first of our series of world herbs. And this one is going to get into Kava Kava, a very interesting herb and a very interesting look at an herb with broad health, societal and mythic impacts. It, there's fantastic myths around this. We're going to get into that. It has, it, it plays a huge role in the societies that grow this. So we're going to talk about that. And of course, it has health benefits. So we're going to talk about all that. Kava Kava is going to be fascinating. That's going to be next week on Spurbs Herbs. I would like to thank you for listening. Uh, again, if you can remember when you buy from Amazon, please go to our website and click on the banner ad that's there at spurbsherbs.com. And you can always get in touch with me at drgreg at spurbsherbs.com. That's D-R-G-R-E-G -R -E -G at spurbsherbs.com. 
or at our website and click on the contact us at www.sperbsherbs.com. Thank you. The proceeding was presented by Dr. Greg Sperber. We would like to thank Janelle for all her support and everybody else who contributed to this program. Janelle. Timothy, Timothy Dobbins, Dobbins. Rogers. Campbell.